Welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the American Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Sola. very happy because today we are recording our 27th and final episode of 2022 for the Transatlanticist. First, I would like to thank all of my guests for sharing their expertise with our global audience, which now includes listeners from nearly every country on the planet. So thank you, listeners. You're great. I'm always really, really happy when someone in Kazakhstan, Algeria, or Japan downloads an episode on German philosophy, Native American poetry, the literature of Chicago, or European politics. It truly is a small world. Also, the board and staff here at the American Centrum are just fantastic. Zara, Laura, and our wonderful interns all deserve a special thank you for all of their hard work this year. Thanks to Dr. Stephanie Schaefer, who hosts Lady Fiction, our series on contemporary issues in American studies. Thanks to Dr. Douglas Cowie, who hosts our series on the literature of Chicago, which is Hamburg's sister city. And thank you to Dr. Ellen Svensson and Dr. Michael Coyle for hosting the Transatlantic Wisdom podcast, which I think should win an award for the most cerebral podcast published on the planet this year. If you haven't listened to Transatlantic Wisdom, you should. And finally, thank you to my guest today, Dr. Gunter Donner, our multi-talented EU expert who also performs the Transatlanticist theme music on the piano. Happy holidays, Gunter. Thank you so much. <laughs> Same to you. We've made it through another year. How are you feeling? Oh, very well, actually. Uh Retirement has its advantages at my Oh, age. you still work for me. Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we discussed a number of extremely important issues on the politics podcast this year. So Gunter and I are just going to do a quick summary of the issues that shape 2022. And these all have bearing on 2023. So we'll give our perspective on the future as well. Our top six issues this year are... The war in Ukraine, of course. Next, the current state of politics in the U.S. Third, the rise of the far right in Europe. Fourth, the EU corruption scandal. And we have not done a podcast about this this year because it's kind of unfolding as we speak. But this will become important in 2023. So we'll just do a primer on what's going on in the EU. So it's both an old and a new subject in that corruption at the EU has often been criticized, lack of oversight, lack of strong ethics bodies, but we'll see what, where that takes us. Uh, next and fifth is the general economic issues, of course. There's high inflation and a variety of supply chain troubles, issues with China, issues with Russia. And our sixth and final point is going to be uh, Western strategies to manage relations with autocratic states such as China, Russia, and Iran. I'm going to get us started, though, with the war in Ukraine. And unfortunately, I have a, a pessimistic analysis. And Gunter, you can let me know what you think about my pessimism. 
So when I look at Ukraine, I actually look at it through the lens of Syria. And uh, Putin escalated the conflict in Syria. And I think we have forgotten that we're in the 12th year of that conflict, the Syrian civil war. And Putin has continued to tip the scales in favor of the Assad regime because maintaining control of his last major ally and his last naval base in the Mediterranean is far more important to Putin than it is to, for example, the United States. So it makes sense that if the U.S. sends some aid to some rebels, he will send double the amount of aid to the Assad regime. So if we look at it through this lens, we can also understand that Ukraine is far more important to Putin than Ukraine is to the United States. In fact, Ukraine is a thousand times more important to Putin than even Syria is. So endless escalation and a drawn-out conflict suits Putin just fine. He has the strategic patience that the West might or might not have. And I think another way of looking at this is through, again, the long-term analysis, which is that Putin views global peace, international order, and international security as a long-term negative for Russia. Conflict and chaos is always far better for Russia, at least in his view, than an orderly and peaceful status quo. In that peaceful status quo, Russian influence always declines. This is, I believe, his view. So on the Ukrainian side, I don't see any weakening of their resolve. So I do not foresee an end to the conflict in Ukraine, nor the conflict in Syria. And of course, it gives me great pain to say this, but I think that's the reality. A final important point on this subject is uh, the key to Ukraine's survival is continuing U.S. support. Without the U.S. leading the effort, the Western alliance will collapse and Ukraine along with it. And pretty much everyone agrees with that assessment, barring some Republican outliers in Congress. We are recording this on 21 December, and it looks like Congress will pass a new budget before the end of this legislative session. And the spending bill will be $1.7 trillion, $1.7 trillion, of which $858 billion is for the military. $858 billion, which is a 10% increase from last year. Within that pot of money is $28 billion for security assistance in Ukraine. So this includes money for ammunition, training, weapon systems, etc. So if this budget passes, and it should, it looks like the lifeline to Ukraine will be extended for many more months. But the security assistance might only provoke more escalation from Putin. Anyway, the size of that budget makes me always think about the question of Europe's long-standing desire to develop strategic autonomy from the U.S., which would require massive increases in military spending. My analysis of that question is that it would be a great idea, but it will not happen anytime soon, simply because European nations are not willing to spend anywhere near $858 billion per year to become functionally autonomous in the military sense. So, Gunter, uh, your thoughts on the war in Ukraine and what we can expect to see in 2023? Uh, yeah, well, I think the most uh, pivotal point of the whole affair is will the NATO-Western alliance hold? As you've rightly said, without the U.S. support and, I may uh, add, support by other Western nations, 
Ukraine would be finished within weeks. I'm quite optimistic that these, this alliance will hold. Putin has, he may have left no stone unturned to destabilize the alliance from the, from the inside, especially after his defeats on the battlefield multiplied. The instruments employed for this purpose are, to name a few, the energy war. We have to bear in mind that the energy war in its repercussions in our economy and our daily life largely has this effect due to decades of a completely misled energy policy by many Western countries and by no country worse than by Germany. Three quarters of it is a homemade problem. Uh, we've created this dependency on the Putin regime against better knowledge. And uh, for whatever reason, during various governments of various political colors, and we have not learned the lesson, now we have to learn it under force. We may. Uh, I'm quite optimistic that we will survive this. So Putin also has an, an ample fifth column in many West European countries. They come in, in various forms of disguise. Peace activists in former times, they were called, they were just against NATO weapons, of course. Warsaw Pact weapons were welcome. Followers of conspiracy myth have taken over because the peace movement is in decline. Uh, new Nazis preferring a Putin dictatorship of whatever fabric to a Western-style democracy. And alas, in Germany, we do have old-school communists and hardcore left-wing socialists. Once those were his most faithful allies during the better years of the Soviet realm. And as you, as we've discussed already, I do not make such a difference between the Soviet realm and the Putin realm. Nothing has really changed in Russia. But the flag, uh, the form of oppression is the same. The, 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 the torturing chambers have been in use since the days of Stalin. The Lubanka is still an active the headquarters of the FSB. So very little has in fact changed. And we've made ourselves believe that this is a totally different country now with a with a 100% Democrat at, at its top, that was all crap from the, to start with. Excuse my excuse me for my language, but that was nonsense from the from the start and self deceit. And for this now we have to, to think twice. So the the energy weapon is of course uh, the most tangible to people. It's driven up inflation, though I think it's also made us see what was a pipe dream of our energy policy during the last two decades and what was reality. And we've learned a lot, probably not to the end, and we will continue this process of having to learn that certain developments just can't, cannot be brought about so, so quickly as some may wish them to. There is another weak spot in the alliance, which is Turkey. I'm rather distrustful of the Turkish regime. But in the end, so, so you see that they wish to, under whatever pretext, to, 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 to prolong the uh, admission of Finland and Sweden to NATO. In the end, they will not be able to, 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 to stop this process. It may take a year or two longer. Um, so I'm summing up quite positive about the alliance. What you said that America has to, 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 to remain steadfast on the side of the Ukraine is, is of, import, of importance uh, beyond compare. You cannot replace the U.S. in this. And, and that is a domestic 
political issue. And I, I read the news this morning. Again, we're recording this on the 21st, but apparently President Zelensky of Ukraine will be addressing Congress mm-hmm. in person in D.C. Mm-hmm. today. Apparently, it's been a closely held secret. So I don't know. By the time this comes out, we'll know if Zelensky made a speech to the U.S. people in Washington, D.C. But he's a clever person. He knows that there are some fractures in the Republican Party and some little birds are singing, well, maybe we need to be careful about how much money we give to Ukraine. And if he sees the writing on the wall, it would be a great opportunity for him to address the American people and make a political case, much like an American politician would, of why this aid is critically important. Uh, Well, you're right. Uh, Zelensky is a mastermind of public relations. You're just bereft of speech how he's turned his the miserable role of his country and his office in February after years of already being at war with Russia. But few, just a few Western nations were able to to admit that. And reactions when the Crimea was was annexed in 2014 were were pitiful. They were they were ridiculous. One was trying to block all insight into the true character of the Putin regime, he's turned that around. Putin is the total, complete loser of the PR war. His blatant lies, his ridiculous Soviet-style, again, as I said, Soviet-style nonsense propaganda is just destined for interior purposes where at point blank you have to believe it. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's clear that his information war is primarily based on his own domestic audience. It is. And Mm -hmm. Zelensky's is more of an outward-looking one because he recognizes how important public opinion is in in Mm -hmm. maintaining these arms flows and support. Okay, so that brings me to the second main point today, which is my thoughts on Trump and Biden in 2024 because the midterm elections are over, so that chapter is closed. The the, uh, Democrats kind of maintained control of the Senate, but Kristen Sinema of Arizona announced she would become an independent. She was a Democrat. So now it looks like there will still be a a majority for the Democrats, but who knows what Sinema is doing. And there's a lot of inside politics stuff about that decision. She'll certainly still caucus with the Democrats, which essentially means she will maintain her committee assignments, which the Democrats will give her, which means although officially she's not a member of the Democratic Party anymore, functionally she has to operate that way. Anyway, so the midterms are over. The Republicans won the House. Democrats maintain control of the Senate. And so now we all get to think about Trump-Biden 2024, my favorite subject. So apparently Biden will decide over the holidays if he will run for president again. And when he does, he would be 82 years old. I have no idea what he and his family will decide. And he has repeatedly said that this is a family decision. So we'll just have to wait and see. More interesting for me is is Trump running. Um, And he has announced his candidacy right after the midterms. But he had a really difficult month of December. His company was convicted of fraud and tax evasion in New York. His tax returns have finally been provided to the House Oversight Committee, and they will be released to the public, which is also a separate issue, but interesting. Of course, the House January 6th Committee has referred him for potential prosecution to the Department of Justice on four 
federal criminal charges, including the very serious charge of providing comfort and support to insurrectionists. It's unclear still if he will be indicted by the Justice Department and then put on trial and then, of course, convicted. And if convicted, he will probably be banned from running for president legally. But let's explore the alternative, which is, I think, equally likely. What if he is never put on trial? Can he win the Republican nomination and then the presidential election in 2024? Well, here's my prediction. And it's only a way of analyzing the situation. My best analytic strategy is just to look at how he's managing the news cycle, as well as his negative polling numbers. So is he staying in the public eye? Yes, the man is a master of staying in the public eye. And he doesn't care about the bad press because if he's on the front pages, he's on the front pages, even if it's for something bad. But what about his negative polling numbers? And this is my analysis for his negative polling numbers, in that people get tired of things. People get bored with shows on television, with reality shows. And it could be that the Trump reality show is just becoming more annoying and aggravating than it is exciting and invigorating. The other part of my analysis is rests on an assumption that Trump cannot find new voters. He's found every voter who will support him in the country. No one's going to change their minds. His solid base will be solid. But you sometimes wonder, well, where is he going to add? Is he going to add any Democrats? Absolutely not. Is he going to add any independents? We've seen in the midterms that he can't add independent votes. So he's reached something of a ceiling of the number of voters that he can attract. And then all that can do is ebb away. So I've, I would suggest he's, in fact, reached the top. And when you reach the top, there's only way forward, which is down. So I wouldn't be surprised if month after month throughout 2023, we'll see progressively shrinking. And it could only be shrinking by very small amounts, but we'll just see a shrinking of his popularity and an increase in his negativity numbers. And that just essentially means that you're on a one-way one -way track down. Gunter, your thoughts? Well, uh, again, I have to repeat, I'm not an, a U.S. citizen, so I'd be careful who to, do, to give recommendations uh, which person Americans should vote for. But one thing is clear. I mean, Trump from the onset to me was a shock. I have to admit I'm quite a conservative person myself. So I, I can well understand that being conservative in America is still something different from being conservative in Britain or in Germany. But I could well understand that Conservatism has its merits in many in many respects, but the thing is, Trump has been doing bottomless harm to his party, bottomless harm, uh, discrediting the party as a structure. Uh, so, when he then ultimately declared that the U.S. Constitution ought to be brushed aside because he had to be reinstated in his former office, this would make him see the public prosecutor in, in Germany. This was just a bereaving of speech. Gunter, those comments are so strange that, for example, the Constitution should be ripped up. Or I can't remember what he said, but it was very extreme. And some of the Trump apologists go on television and they're asked about this. And they say the wildest things like, oh, 
uh, you take Trump literally, we tr- take him seriously. And the idea here is that you're not supposed to believe what he says. You're supposed to come up with your own conclusion about the nice thing that's supposed to mean, not the bad thing it's supposed to mean. And always my response to this is the idea of clear communication, especially if you're a political leader, is to say what you're thinking. (laughs) You know, having confusion in your message is always bad because then people are confused about what you mean. So, you know, I just, that defense of Trump, I'm finding less and less convincing. It It was never convincing for that matter. To my understanding of politics and politicians' behavior patterns, whatever, Trump has always been quite, uh, and that has multiplied during his years in office, and now probably has uh, assumed uh, alarming proportions, has shown a deranged character. Uh, He's completely unpredictable. I wouldn't really consider him a political person. So what I would expect him to do, because he's, he's completely beset with his ego, and politics, don't, he, to my reading, he doesn't care for politics. I, he, not at all, but he has to be at the center of everything. What I would expect is that he tries, if he wins enough financial support, which is of the essence in your country, and might be, may be difficult for him, if he f- finds enough support, he comes up with his own movement or party or however you'd like Just to Just like Truth it. Social. That, once he was kicked off Twitter. Whatever. what, Yeah, whatever. He, he comes out with his own movement to save the country from uh, whatever nonsense, from not coming under, under, the, under the rule of Trump again. So he has, he's completely self-centered. And to my reading, he has no understanding for political dialogue, for political uh, compromising. He, he cannot do this. The pivotal point of the whole affair uh, politics, he doesn't care. He would do A and he would do minus A the other day. So this is my reading. It may be wrong. I've never lived in America under the Trump years, but what I've gathered from there has brought me to this. Uh, so what I think, if the Republican Party wants to survive, uh, they have to be prepared that Trump may come with his own movement that cost them votes probably and they have to finally find a new candidate who is convincing that that's a good point i i think some republicans especially old school republicans are actually worried that trump's ire and rage could very easily now be directed at dismantling the republican party of course, itself absolutely every day and uh, that's obviously much more of a danger for them mm-hmm. but we'll see it's going to be an exciting year and and we'll even see in early January, when the House is required to elect a new Speaker of the House, if there can be any order maintained in the Republican Party in the House with all of its various splits and divisions. Even even erstwhile allies, namely Bobart and Marjorie Taylor Greene, are now at each other's throats. And they were both mega-maga types. Anyway, let's move on to our next subject. So going from, I guess, right-wing populism in the United States with Trump to uh, right-wing populism in Europe. Mm -hmm. We did a podcast a couple months ago about the election of uh, right-wing groups in Sweden and Italy. And of course, we just last week did one on the Reichsburger right-wing conspiracy here in Germany. So, Gunter, you follow European politics very closely. Mm-hmm. 
We saw these big shifts to the right in Sweden and Italy in 2022. Mm-hmm. What are you expecting to see in 2023? More of this. We have to add one country where it did not materialize. That was France. I mean, if you look at Madame Le Pen's results, she was rather far more uh, far more of a heavyweight in French politics than was uh, a Reichsburger in Germany or uh, a Swedish right wing. And Gunther here is referring to the elections for president in France, which were uh, many months ago. When were they? Uh, in May. In May. And of course, here, um, Emmanuel Macron beat Marine Le Pen, the far right candidate. Yeah. Carry on, Gunther. Yes. So what I think is as long as discontent and a growing shattering of the welfare state, which is almost omnipresent in Europe, though at very different different levels of generosity and financial potential. But those are now shattered. What I see is uh, in Eastern Europe, right-wingers are, if I look at Poland, are probably slowly but surely uh, changing behavior patterns, whereas Orban is completely isolated and he's, he's, on the, he's on the downward slope, as is his country. Others have managed to get control of the right-winger problem. Right-wing, right-wing voters normally are proportionate to discontent, and public discontent in times of such severe crises as we see them today is, is, comes as no surprise. Again, a democracy has, to, uh, has to, to, to accept this and has to master it. I'm not really a great fan of we 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 start for, to, to 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 forbid these parties. You forbid one and two others pop up. This won't really help you in the long run. What we have to do is we have to give people a perspective. So uh, that's why I see with a certain uh, amount of, of, of disillusionment the uh, the rather fragile state of the British welfare state. Whereas a right-winger problem has never been so severe in, 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 in the United Kingdom due to the uh, election system, where parties just don't really help you. You have to win in your constituency or you, you don't win at all. Right. So, Gunter, I just want to expand on what you've just been saying and take it to our, our next topic as well. You said, and I totally agree, that politicians and political parties need to be offering a different type of message, a message, I don't know, of solidarity or somehow a reinforcement of democratic and the social democratic norms in the sense of providing people with the welfare systems that they love so much. And that takes us to the huge problems within the EU and namely this corruption scandal. The EU was always meant to be this symbol of of uh, European unity and the rule of law and democracy and a spreading out of the wealth of Western Europe to the outer fringes of Europe, namely the East and the South. And of course, the EU has been criticized since its founding, and sometimes the criticism reaches a fever pitch, and sometimes it goes down. And and here we have now, just a couple of weeks ago, a massive uh, bribery and corruption scandal erupting at the heart of the EU in Brussels. So, Guter, just talk a little bit about what happened with the scandal and how it's going to affect the EU and public perception in 2023. Well, 
Uh, a, I was shocked when I heard the details, and especially I was really shocked when I heard details, uh, the volume, and uh, the, the the. Why don't the, you start with the details, Gunter? Uh, well, the details is a group of parliamentarians. That's what we know now, not civil servants. A group of parliamentarians, the highest ranking being the former uh, vice president uh, uh, of the European Parliament, one of fourteen, by the way a Greek lady and socialist career politician, were arrested on charges of corruption, huge num- huge bags of... <laughs> it's just bags, so ridiculous. Bags of cash. Bags of six, cash. It's just six, slapstick style. It, 600,000 no, euros in yes, bags it's of cash. Far more, it's far more. New, new bags have been found <laughs> by the time. And her dad has carried them away and hidden them somewhere. So that is... A slapstick version of corruption. A, a cartoonist couldn't have done a better thing. I wasn't too 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 surprised that corruption occurs where there is money galore and very little control. Uh, right, parliamentarians are rarely under strict control. The European Parliament has been really busily working on declaring relations towards income from the outside, towards uh, employment or uh, gainful activity for uh, stakeholders in a certain economic or political process. For all we know now, and as you've rightfully said, the uh, things are still unfolding as we speak, two external powers, presumably Qatar and Morocco, have bought parliamentarians for PR purposes to make them more attractive and to, to support their the political whatever. essentially turning them into lobbyists, but yes. of course lobbyists need to be declared. And lobbyists have to be declared, and being the lobbyist of an external power alien to the EU, uh, taking money for this as a and her holding a parliamentary function at the same time is strictly forbidden. So that is completely out of the question. That could never uh, could never be legally uh, accepted. So that it occurred. <laughs> Yeah, to me, is not a great surprise. Uh, uh, lobbyism is always uh, opens the dangers. Gunter, how much political will within Parliament, the EU Parliament, is there to have stronger ethics oversight? Well, you, you po- do... politicians are notorious for not wanting to govern themselves strictly, but um, how can that happen? If you if you compare the the rules laid down by the European Parliament over the last decade and a half regarding how to deal with lobbyists. I was once a lobbyist myself, so I had to to be extremely careful not never to 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 make ground contact there. It was a rather difficult thing to do, and believe me, I was lobbying for an institution that could have never uh, a bottle of wine costing more than seven euros was considered a bribe. So. What you have here is you have human weakness, and human weakness, no control whatsoever helps against it. If a person is personally and morally unfit for such an office because prone to take whatever money comes in a bag, how would you control it? I mean, you can control their bank accounts. Corruption has, let's face it, corruption has become, uh, it has always been part of of our society of giving and taking. The thing now is, how can you prevent such incidents from happening again, if at all? 
What you have to make sure is that there is more control, that there is a better address for whistleblowers, because whistleblowing normally is the thing how this pops up. We don't really know how this came to light. Uh, It will probably be, uh, we'll be told, we'll hear more about this when when legal action will be taken. But whistleblowing is one thing. That humans are weak to take cash, and by the idea of cash, you you know that no bank controlled supervision, no declaration to the institutions in Parliament would have ever helped because what what's moved in cash you can really it's difficult to prove unless you hit the bag with the with the with the, with the banknotes. I, I don't want to defend this. This is terrible, and they will should be punished for this. But you have to look into people's minds and character. And many become politicians out of multiplying their individual gains. Uh, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a weak spot of our, of, of our system, of our being human. And politicians probably are far more prone to, to being corrupted than, for instance, an artist. He, has, he or she has to sell what they can do. They buy it or not. But politicians are very exposed to being lured into corruption. And once taking the first bag, their, their liberty, their freedom is gone. They depend right. on – and they are, they are open to blackmail as well. Yeah, never take the first bribe because then you're never. Open, never. open to blackmail forever. We learned this in Chicago at a very young age, but maybe the rest, the, so. rest, yes. the rest of the world uh, needs to learn that lesson. Going from wads of cash in gym bags in uh, <laughs> European parliaments, parliamentarians' apartments to our normal people's economic issues. Issue five this, uh, for this podcast was general economic issues, and let's now turn to average workers. You already talked about the fact that social systems are under strain in, in Europe, as they are in the United States. Everyone knows about inflation. Is there going to be any relief for the workers of the United States and Western Europe, and I guess the, all of European countries this year? To start with the U.S., um... If, to my knowledge, your inflation figures have improved considerably over the last few weeks. Maybe that holds. Uh, they're much better than ours now, uh, strangely enough. Uh, so I would be happy to pay your price on f- charged for gas, uh, as you call it, or petrol. Here in Europe, this looks differently, of course. So our inflation is still far too high. It will slowly but surely be brought down, I believe, it's mostly depending on the uh, on the energy on the energy issue. So, other economic data here in Germany and in certain other parts of Europe as well are not that negative. So we have still underemployment. Everybody is recruiting, but many people prefer not to. Uh, it's one of the crazy things that yeah. very few people understand about the German economy. There, mm-hmm. There's like a million open positions yes. for skilled at, people at that just cannot levels, be yeah. filled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah right. often, but skilled. And, and people won't, don't even want to get trained for those jobs. No. And and that, that that's so interesting. And it's been like that for years. The number is usually always the same. It's like 950,000 mm-hmm. to 1.1 million highly paid open jobs for people to take, and no one takes them. Uh, let me add that our welfare system, especially our social aid, and that's been re- uh, reformed by the government lately, 
as from January will allow you to well uh, with that, there was a dealing and wheeling between the 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 opposition and the government and the and people still are under certain control to look to see to it that they get a job uh, but it, this is not this hasn't never been carried out in a very strict fashion because it's very time consuming and the the authorities charged with these uh, activities are, are under understaffed so uh, the thing is people taking in social aid for, for for a number of years without ever having to to try to find a job even if vacancies had been shown to them and that be sent there this may probably change i i think you don't do these people a favor if you allow them to live on on the dole as we say in england for years on and after a number of years getting back to a regular work ruled life is probably very very difficult well, Gunter, you've been retired for about, what, a year and a half now. Can you imagine getting up at 5 a.m. every day? I don't like it. <laughs> Though and recently I, I got up at, at half, half, half full uh, to catch it. One, yeah. Yeah, not five days a week. No, but I did in former times. And uh, yeah. it's yeah, all a matter of you have to do it regularly. That's the point. One thing I don't know about, maybe you have some stats, is, is this um, – are these people on, on the dole, on welfare? Are we seeing lots of younger people? Yeah. Well, we have two, roughly speaking, two, 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 two groups. The ones are those who add certain amounts of what is the social aid to an otherwise insufficient, say, a very small pension, a widow's pension. These are elderly people having lived through very harsh years in, in, in the past, and mostly women, with a then rather negative work balance because they hadn't paid into the pension scheme for not having been employed long enough and consistently employed long enough. So this is a group of people, they, they merit a far more generous handling of the thing. You cannot do more than what people had to were working in the 50s, 60s and 70s by comparison to what they are forced to do now. Uh, the other are probably younger elements, and as as in many cases, you have all all sorts of uh, applications. You have young people who have no qualification. I mean, that should be controlled, or should, they should be given assistance at an early stage. That you leave school and go out without schooling or professional training on the work market, on the on the, on the labour market today. Uh, this is just not reasonable. And it will not prepare you for a future. Uh, so that is probably to be laid at the door of the education uh, authorities within our federal states. The other is young people who prefer rent-paid, free healthcare, 450 euros cash a month, and do some black labor. That is criminal. Mm -hmm. That should be prosecuted and really prosecuted. As with uh, most of these things, Gunter... The uh, oversight costs a lot of money. That's right. And it's you, probably you, not worth. It's right there. The time uh, and cost of investigation. That is true, but uh, again, uh, by turning a, a blind eye towards these problems, uh, you don't you don't really help those who rightfully ap apply for social aid because the whole system becomes discriminated in public in, in, in public perception. You have to entice people to actually look for work. 
work can be tough, but it can also be fulfilling. And, and, and probably what we now see, and there are a number of different approaches, early start, first starters on the workplace, that's always a problem because they cost more than they deliver for the employer mostly. They should be given a grant to start work instead of remaining home or worse, apply for jobs on the black market scene. That is still there. I'm greatly in favour of a welfare state that is functioning and giving people certainty and peace of mind in hard times of their life. But this requires giving and taking. It requires also activities on part of these these people in question. Well, uh, the issues of welfare extend to the US too, and we could spend hours discussing that. But let's go now to our final issue today, which is basically maybe what I'm starting to see, the glimmerings of a, a new trend, which people like Putin and China were trying to prevent, is a consolidation of uh, American-led and a Western approach to international order, international trade and security uh, against autocratic regimes such mm-hmm. as China, Russia, and Iran. And for many, many years, I think Putin and China were trying to peel off or drive wedges in this mm-hmm. democratic, free market, Western approach. And uh, one of the negatives, for example, for China of the Putin's war on Ukraine is that you're seeing a lot of more coming together of the Western alliances, and then including Japan and Australia, against uh, autocracies. So do you think this trend is, is, have I accurately described it? Is it a trend, or what do you think? I hope it is. Uh, I see three very, or yeah, three and a half, very prominent characters of these rogue nations, of these autocrats, that is Russia, that Putin has dropped mask when he invaded Ukraine, and now we know what to think of him. But Putin has set, he's set an example that others may not be ready to follow, unless they're quite out of their minds, uh, which certainly is not the case for China. The Chinese are known to, to weigh the pros and cons of a measure even as uh, bloody and as brutal as the Tiananmen massacre. Uh, and they weigh it, and they got away with it easily then, uh, I have to admit. Uh, so had Putin realized uh, a walkover, crushed Ukraine, and installed his puppet regime, they might have followed him. And Taiwan certainly may be may have been at a far greater danger than, than, than it's now. Choosing the military option, blatant aggression, requires you to, to win. If you lose or if you if you get bogged down, this is this this does not really uh, help your prestige. And Putin, in many fields, has lost diplomatically. He's in ruins now. His army is is tattered. Well, uh, and this is the point I was trying to make. Uh, very few people want to get closer to indeed. Putin these days. Even people in the past say, even even Hungary, but. Italians always had a soft spot yeah. for so, a, certain, so, a certain type of Italian yeah, had a soft yeah. stop spot for Putin. Um, you know, this, 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 uh, his successful decades of driving wedges in the Western mm-hmm. alliance, he's kind of thrown all that away now. 
again, was my assessment. Indeed, he's been called red-handed, and he hasn't. He has not even been successful because the offer is still offering a more than a more than anticipated degree of reluctance to comply, and this will continue probably. So, with enough Western help, and above all, of course, U.S. help, but I'm happy to to see that the United Kingdom is also uh, giving a helping hand. Again, I think this should be said. Uh, much stronger than what comes from other sources. Uh, let me name Germany and France. They, they are a bit, uh, mm, well, have to be carried to the dance. Uh, I think this will continue and Putin will be, uh, what will he do? He can sacrifice more of his soldiers. That will uh, increase his problems at home and f- require him to even tougher forms of oppression. Economically speaking, his future is running out and time is working against him. So I do not believe in Putin winning anything by a prolonged war. Uh, the thing yeah, is, he doesn't I, know I, how to I stop disagree. it. I disagree with you I know. on that, Kunter. And it, and it doesn't matter reasons why. It will be a prolonged war and it yes. will harm everyone, <laughs> as, as most wars do. Yeah, we're not talking about harming, but will Putin in the end win it? And uh, this is what I what I still can't see really because he's losing on the battlefield. No, but as as I said, as I said, I think the the for me at least the better analysis is that losing the war, as you describe it, is a win in that continued instability always benefits him. Chaos benefits him. So yeah, a but- long war by its nature is prolonging. Chaos, and but I know what, there there are maybe that, chaos that, for, uh, uh, at home. I mean, it's it's far, uh, very few tyrants in history have survived massive military disasters. Very yeah. few. And Russia is known for its revolutions. Anyway, I do not expect a revolution at least for in, for, for, in, for in ways and means how to get rid of people in twenty twenty three. Yeah. Okay, uh, Gunter, thanks so much for doing this. You're uh, most welcome. Up. It was. A pleasure as always. And I wish you uh, happy holidays. And, yes. Uh, we'll see you again you. in 2023. And to, so. all of our, to all of our listeners out there, thanks as always for listening. We have a cracking lineup for 2023 uh, on all of our different parts of the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast, as well as Lady Fiction and our Literature of Chicago series. So stay tuned in 2023. We'll probably take a couple-week break, though. I know you'll miss us. Thanks for listening. Bye. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.